Welcome to Season 4, Episode 3 or 4, I've lost count, of the Bill Bradley Collective. How are you doing, Zach? Doing all right. It's uh, it's morning in America again. How are you doing, Andrew? Better than some, not as good as others. Okay. <laughs> so we will be talking about our judgment on the first four days of the Biden administration because ultimately politics is like Tinder. You're going to swipe one way or the other. Zach, what will you be ranting about? Uh, I will be ranting about the fallacy of the unity with accountability push that we've seen. Since I'm talking to you anyway, I would like to pay special tribute to the reboot of Name That Tune which is coming on, on on television on some channel that covers football games or otherwise they wouldn't know about it. And it's going to be hosted by Jane Kaczynski, who seems to be in a torrid affair with the MyPillow guy, who I think has a name. It might be Mark Liddell, but um, he is threatening to sue about this accusation, which strikes me as weird. But in tribute to, to Name That Tomb, I have 25 names here, and I want you to tell me what they all have in common. How many names do you think it will take? If I don't get in the first 10, I'm not getting it. Okay. Tiffany, Heller, Cody, Dylan, Dermot, Jordan, Taylor, Brittany, Wesley, Rumor, Scout, Cassie Doey. What do those names have in common? Andrew, you, Andrew. Again, yeah. Tiffany, Heller, Cody, Dylan, Dermot, Jordan, Taylor, Brittany, Wesley, Rumor, Scout, Cassidy, and Zoe. My guess is they were all on the Disney club. They're all part of the Disney club. Chloe, Max, Hunter, Kendall, Caitlin, Noah, Sasha, Morgan, Kara, Ian, Hubert, and Phil are the other ones. I have absolutely no idea. I'll give you another hint. Slack-jawed yokels. Oh, it's the children of... Yeah, okay, it's Cletus's children. <laughs> These are all the children of Cletus because Marge failed to put one pretzel per customer on the coupon. So oh, they were not God. able to eat dinner. Very, very disappointing, Zach. I'm, I'm, all right. No one is more disappointed than I. <laughs> Andrew, what will you be ranting about? I'm going to talk about the decision of NBC Universal to, uh, to scrub the NBC Sports Network from existence and how it's going to impact the NHL and kind of how I see the future of the rights and streaming going forward. So, normally, this is where we play Dead and Alive, but Dead and Alive came from the origin story of Dead and Alive is that you twice chose to talk about pitchers from the 70s who had died. And Don Sutton had been an answer to a, a Dead or Alive question about the 1966 Dodgers staff. And you said he was alive, which I marked as correct, but I must revise that because he died this week. So my question about Don Sutton to you is, is he a Hall of Famer? In my mind, I'm I'm a no. I'm a no on Don Sutton. 
This is a career that rookie year in '66 with the Dodgers, the whole where we started with this 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 hot game show. Played until 1988, the year I was born. Played 23 23 seasons. Hit a lot of benchmarks. He won 300 plus games. Things that get you like how 500 home runs once got you in the Hall of Fame automatically. 300 wins gets you in the Hall of Fame automatically. He hit 324. He was very good for a long time. Good for a longer time. There's not enough. I don't think he never won a Cy Young. I'm sure you can count on one hand the number of seasons where he would have been the top, a top three starter in the National League, where he spent most of his career, the prime of his career with the Dodgers. Um, he is he is kind of to me the definition of what is compiler. When somebody says compiler, I think Don Sutton is the very he's the guy. Compiler, Don Sutton, great pitcher, so- not a Hall of Famer. I always talk about the Rusty Staub one. Rusty Staub was a good player for a long time, but he was no one ever thought of him as a Hall of Famer. I'd like to point this out. For the first 18 years of Don Sutton's career, he won double digits. And then five times after that, he has a 1.14 whip, which is very high. Four-time All-Star, five straight years, is a top five, uh, top five Cy Young Award winner. But the thing that interests me is that there is another Hall of Famer, Owen Ryan, who has the exact same number of career wins. He also has uh, 36 more losses. Ryan's ERA is a little better, 3.19 to 3.26, but it's very little. I'm wondering if you started a if you had someone to draft at the start of their career and said this is what their career will be, who you'd pick? I think you'd pick Ryan because Ryan's heights were higher. That Nolan Ryan in a playoff game could conceivably go out and simply shut you down uh, in a way Sutton could not. Although Don Sutton had nine shutouts in a season, Nolan Ryan never hit that amount. I think it's close enough so that Sutton deserves the Hall of Fame based on that. He is, incidentally, one of the worst hitters who ever lived. He only hit 144 and he hit zero home runs and 1,350 at-bats, which is really quite a statement. Zach, do you think he's a Hall of Famer? Uh, I no. I, I don't know enough about Dot Sutton's career, but um, Andrew makes a pretty good argument. I mean, the man just died. So he's a Hall of Famer. Yeah, this I mean, week. Jesus, can we have a little respect, we we have a little respect for I'm the dead? I'm trying to be insensitive. <laughs> trying to be insensitive. You know what, no. Andrew? Oh. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. well, and I know that you're going to be traveling to L.A. to pee on his grave in, 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 when this podcast <laughs> is over. But realistically, anybody whose career is arguably the same as Nolan Ryan's, I don't know. I mean – he had 22 double-digit win seasons, or 21. That's a lot. I do think the one thing we have to hold against Don Sutton is he was one of those white guys that went with afros that made all the really cool black guys with huge afros say, yeah, I'm not doing this anymore. Um, so we lost the Darnell Hillmans in the world until, you know, 
Don Sutton got super old and bald and then Jared Allen felt okay about going back. But I just, uh, I think Sutton, I think that, I think Sutton is clearly over the line, but I'm willing to accept the disagreement. I think I'm kind of a hard marker, kind of a dick on these sorts of things. And like, I'm not trying to throw shade on this recently deceased man, but, and obviously with Ryan, with Ryan, it's the strikeouts. And it's also the fact that he led the, he was throwing, he was striking out 300 people a year into his forties. And that's and, what got him over that. that and, and the other thing that's fair about strikeouts. that comparison is that Sutton got way more wins early from 66 to 71 when the advantages for pitching were way higher. Ryan got his later. Still, they both won 324 games. Um, that's a lot of games. And so uh, I think it's an interesting argument. And uh, I apologize to Don Sutton's widow and children that Andrew shit all over you. So um, I will be talking about the new NFL hiring um, in which our African-American coaches managed to somehow get shut out again. But Dan Campbell, a tight end coach, did get a job. We will also be joined later on by Bernie Sanders, which I'm very excited about. Uh, he's come to talk about his meme, which has aged incredibly well, and I'm not at all tired about after three days. But after the break, we will return with the Bill Bradley Collective. Perched at the intersection of sports and politics, we are the Bill Bradley Collective. Here are your hosts, Andrew, Zach, and Ed. So this week, NBC Universal made the decision to uh, essentially phase out, eliminate by the end of 2021 their cable sports wing, the NBC Sports Network. Uh, the NBC Sports Network is best known as a it's the primary cable home, the only cable home of the National Hockey League. They carry NASCAR. Uh, they carry some Atlantic 10 battle, which is very specific to uh, one Zach here. Going forward for the NHL, you'd think, well, this is this is a problem. Well, that's not really a problem because, A, the NHL is in, is in the final year of their deal with uh, NBC. Um, it is widely believed, expected, that they're going to re-up with NBC going forward and perhaps bring on another partner, kind of how like the NBA has deals with ESPN and with Turner. Uh, the NHL is likely to uh, partner NBC with another, whether it be Fox or ESPN. Going forward, though, so if they stay, no more NBCSN, what does that mean? It means that they plan to put um, NHL games on the USA Network. The USA Network is in far more homes than what the NBC Sports Network was in. That's a positive. But they also wanted to shift a lot of games to the streaming service Peacock. NBC's recently launched uh, service uh, meant to sort of rival the likes of or combat you know, the Netflixes and the Hulus and the Amazon Primes and whatnot. Um, it's, not the first, uh, it's, not, it's not the first move of live sports going to a streaming service. Uh, Peacock, NBC is the American rights holder to the English Premier League, the biggest soccer league in the, on the globe. And a lot of their games are Peacock exclusive in this country. You have Amazon Prime. If you, don't have, if you have no cable, the Thursday night NFL games 
uh, which are between Fox, NFL Network. If you have Amazon Prime and no cable, you can still watch those Thursday night games. As the streaming war gets like, as more money pours into it day after day after day, eventually to me, there's nothing more valuable in television or in just in viewing than live sports rights. I mean, look at look at ESPN Plus. I think I think the future holds, and this is kind of a domino that's fallen, where you're going to have these streaming services, and it, it, it might not be this year. It's probably might not be next year. Going forward, um, you hear it's always it's, it's ESPN, Fox, CBS, and NBC, and that's and Turner, and those are the companies bidding for rights. I expect within the next five years, the likes of Netflix, the likes of Amazon, the likes of perhaps Apple to all get in on um, sort of buying the rights to live sports. Um, and I'm curious what, what, what your thoughts are on that going forward. So when I saw this news, my very first thought was, shit, I have to get Peacock. I understand this as a business decision. I'll probably do it. I, I think you're right, Andrew. I think that this is the future. Um, and I don't really blame any partner for saying we have to maximize our ability to make money. Yeah, and, and they're going to USA, you said? They, uh, so if they, if they well, re part of it is, right? If they, if they re-up with NBC uh, going forward, which is expected... Um, the, essentially, the games that would end up on the games that would normally be on NBCSN, at least a, a chunk of them, would end up on USA, which would mean a lot of, I'm sure, playoff games and you know, big regular season games. A lot of a lot of boomers are going to be really upset that they can't watch 11 hours of SVU on USA every day anymore, um, or and perhaps they can't watch a uh, NXT on a Wednesday. Yeah, it, it, it. I mean, it's cable. I think is going the way of the dodo where. You know, we're going to see, like, more Hulu now at Sports Live. Like, it's just going to be. Damn, that was dope. But it's Hulu doesn't just have live sports. I think we're going to see more, like, individual streaming sites with different contracts. And we're all going to have to. Hulu doesn't just have live sports. It's a lifestyle. Feel me? Switch to the stream. So it's hype now. I watch what I want every night now. You know, we're all going to have to buy six or seven different streaming sites just to watch, like, a football season you know, on, on cable. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't think that's a net positive. I mean, if it brings more sports into people's homes, then yeah, but I don't see it, how that's a net positive. It, it brings more sports into middle-class people's homes. It brings far less sports into poor people's homes. So I'm going to go over the list of coaches who have been hired this year. Robert Sella was hired by the Jets, a fine hire. Brandon Stanley, who managed to turn a defense who had two of the five best players in the NFL into a middle-of-the-road defense, was hired by the Chargers. Nick Cerrani, who has no head coaching experience. And then Dan Campbell was hired by the Lions. Dan Campbell began his career as a tight ends coach, and because of his skill, his career is skyrocketed so that he's now a tight ends coach and then gave the weirdest press conference ever where he talked about biting people's kneecaps as though the problem with the lions was that their head coach wasn't enough of an asshole 
And Texas seems to be ready to hire Josh McCown, who briefly helped coach a high school team uh, when he wasn't able to get a backup job. What do all these people have in common? They are all white. Uh, Eric Bieniemy, the uh, offensive coordinator for the Kansas City Chiefs, who Pat Mahomes said was the most important coach he ever played for, no doubt. It has become clear that the only way that the NFL is going to ever hire coaches of color is if the quarterbacks, the African-American quarterbacks of high-profile NFL teams, such as Deshaun Watson, simply refuse to play for mediocre white men, that there's no other way, that there's nothing they're going to do that's going to make a change other than there's, you know, the NFL is not the NBA. The only stars are quarterbacks. If Andy Reid retires and Pat Mahomes said, I want a coach of color, that's when it will happen. Until then, it will not happen. Because left to their own devices, they're going to hire mediocre white men forever. The Jets interviewed Brian Schottenheimer for their position. Brian Schottenheimer has proved he is worthless. Adam Gase interviewed for the Seattle Seahawks offensive coordinator position. He may get it. Adam Gase. It is clear the owners will hire any white man over any black man if they're given the opportunity. I, I think you're right. I mean, this this was shown when the Texans this week announced that they were considering Josh McCown, who has no coaching experience at all other than being the old guy backing up the young guy on football teams. And you know, you're right. It, 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 it's unfortunate the NFL puts, you know, these that puts their black players that are stars in this position where it's it's on them to do to make sure that the right thing happens, because that, that shouldn't have to be that way. Like people should just do the right thing. It's not hard to hire the most qualified person. It's the most qualified person. It's a black guy. You don't have to hire the worst white coach in the NFL. You know, the fact that the enemy is still out there. You know, and it's like, okay, maybe he's a bad interview. And then Dan Campbell gets hired and talks about eating people's kneecaps. You're like, that interview couldn't have gone well. You know, you talk about qualifications and the Texans are looking at McCown. You're like, well, McCown has clearly less, fewer qualifications uh, than the enemy. It, it's just, it, it's the same. It's more of the same. The NFL will do things like have Black Lives Matter on the back of every football helmet. And then this bullshit happens. Because at the end of the day, they know putting Black Lives Matter on their helmet made them more money than actually doing the right thing and showing that in practice. Josh McCown and others of his ilk, mediocre white quarterbacks that last in this league far too long. And who often gets saddled with mediocre to bad white quarterbacks are black NFL head coaches. And the problem, the problem is even bigger than the hiring process. The problem is also, in addition to that African-American NFL head coaches, and I, I think this is beyond dispute, are given way less in the way of time. They are the, 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 the trigger finger to fire a black coach versus a white coach. It's far quicker. I think Jim Caldwell is a perfect example going from Jim Caldwell who the Lions were fucking abominable under a, a, a long line of mediocre white coaches, Mariucci and Morninweg and fucking Jim Schwartz. They, they, they go to Caldwell. They make the playoffs for the first time in forever. 
He's gone. They bring in Patricia, Matt Patricia, and it's back to shit. This problem is it gets it's getting worse by the year. And the defense that they gave for McCown was well in the NBA they did that with Jason Kidd. Jason Kidd was a terrible coach. He was terrible with two teams. That's not a defense. And okay, I get the enemy is you know still in the playoffs. Maybe you want to get a coach ahead. Dante Culpepper has been an effective offensive coordinator. He has way more qualifications than Stanley Saranchi or, or Campbell, and he wasn't even considered. And by the way, Matt Patricia rehired by the Patriots. So if you're a mediocre white guy, you could draw a high six-figure salary for the rest of your goddamn life. Quickly, too, another another name, um, Byron Lefwich, who as an offensive coordinator has been great, uh, former a black quarterback. Now he's in OC. Yeah. Um, that, that might have been what I meant with Dante Culpepper, but yes, you're right. So for my rant this week, uh, we're going to talk switch over to a little bit of politics. And it took, I don't know, about nine 90 minutes into the Biden administration before I got irritated by something that happened in the media. And it, we keep hearing about this, well, we can't have unity without accountability. We can't have unity without accountability. We have to hold all these Republicans that supported Trump, that supported the sedition, that supported the insurrection, all of them need to be held accountable before we have unity. And I'm like, yes, absolutely. Let's hold them accountable. Let's hold Josh Hawley accountable. Let's hold Ted Cruz accountable. Let's hold McCarthy and Scalise accountable. But then James Clyburn came out with a comment saying, hey, you know, George Bush saw me at the inauguration and he said that I'm the savior because I helped get Biden elected because he did. He, he basically delivered South Carolina to Joe Biden in the, in, the, in the primary, which completely stunted Bernie's momentum and got Buttigieg and Warren and all those and all the others to drop out or Klobuchar to drop out. But he said this as if this is a good thing, that we should be happy that we are now on the same side as George Bush. Hearing that George Bush is good with Joe Biden does not make me feel proud to have voted for Joe Biden. I'd have much rather had George Bush say, I hate Joe Biden. I don't agree with him at all. I hate that you got him elected. But that's why this whole like unity without accountability is such bullshit. It's been 12 years since Bush was president. We're still in the wars he started. We're still dealing with the economic downfall that he created. We're still dealing with all of that. And it's 12 years later, but he gave Michelle Obama a Werther's original at a church service, and now he paints pictures, and all's forgiven. Now he's just kind of this affable oaf who shows up and he can't put on a rain slicker. And, and yeah, now we're fine. He's a war criminal. He committed war crimes. And now we're, and, and, and now we're just fine with it. So it's why it's like, Oh, accountability? What the fuck are you talking about? There's no, there's never accountability if you are rich, white, and powerful. Josh Hawley will be a CNN contributor five minutes after he's out of office. Accountability is never going to happen. And it's just bullshit that we even have to fucking think about it. So will Josh Hawley bump Rick Santorum? Oh, no, he'll bump bump, uh, Claire McCaskill so that they can show they have both sides. Yeah, Bush is a terrible president. You're 100% right. Clyburn's been kind of a disappointment. Um, You know, Bush is not the good old days. The good old days for Republicans are 
Oof. Uh, Ford? I guess Ford was the last Republican president that I would not have utter contempt for. Um, Eisenhower. So, well, Eisenhower is clearly better than Ford. Yeah, Eisenhower is a top t- a top ten president. Um, but you know, I mean, it's you're right, Zach. It's holding Trump accountable does not mean forgiving George Bush, and somehow. Democrats have in their head that it does because we really don't like it when people are unhappy with us. I think you both have uh, really hit this right on the nose. And it's, again, it's how the last four years have just completely eroded how people perceive like decency and morality. And there's a certain, I mean, perhaps like a recency bias, especially I think for people of like, maybe like mine and Zach's age that like perhaps knew that we're conscious of like these these endless wars that were being waged and this the collapse of the economy under Bush. Um it's it's you know he's no he's no ally. He's no ally. I it, it's yeah it's gross. Yeah it, it, it's like we got we got to see this affable oath get get you know reignited. You know we all had friends that went over and fought in that war and some of them came back and they're fine and some of them came back and they were different they're a different person. You know, I've seen my friends have PTSD flashbacks. You know, the economic impact that he had is being felt in the house I live in by my wife. But no, he gave a Werther's original. It's like George Carlin said, they're all in a club and you ain't in it. So we will come back after the break and discuss the first, what, five days of the Biden administration and see if we could find things to be angry about with that. We are also honored today to be joined by the junior senator from Vermont. Is that right, Zach? Is he the junior senator? That is correct. Patrick Leahy is the top one. Is the senior senator. The junior senator of Vermont, uh, the great Bernie Sanders. Well, first, I, I, I appreciate that, uh, Ted or Ed. I don't know what you prefer. You know, it's an, it's an honor to be here with you guys. Uh, big fan. Of your, of your politics and uh, sports content. Thank you for following all our Brooklyn Nets content because I know it means a lot to you. New big three. Big three. <laughs> okay. Big things in Brooklyn. It's all the grounds. Thank you, Bernie. I'm looking forward to buying your sweatshirt. Who's come to discuss this meme. So, Bernie, what do you have to say? I've uh, got a lot of attention. I a lot of attention this week for uh, my appearance at the inauguration of President Biden. And, uh, you know, yeah, I had some warm, some very warm mittens on. The product of the labor of the great people of Vermont. In Vermont, we make great, phenomenal, warm mittens. In Vermont, it's very cold. So it's, it's important to have very warm uh, mittens, gloves. Uh, cannot, cannot understate the importance, overstate the importance of that more. Welcome back. So Wednesday was the inauguration. And I'm looking to hear your first impressions. My first impression was that it was so nice after 8 o'clock, whenever he, Trump left from you know his grand send-off that nobody showed up at, um, to just not worry that something crazy was going to happen. Um, Obviously, inaugurations are kind of a fake holiday, but uh, Andrew, what was your first impression of the inauguration? 
I love to meet some Springsteen. No, you know, number one. I always do, you know. Um, now, like five days in, I it's like the, the great, the Ben Affleck drama, uh, the heist movie, The Town, where John Hamm's character, the uh, the the Fed that's chasing these bank robbers, and he, he calls him, he calls him a no, the no fucking around crew. And in five days, I've seen very little fucking around. They're not fucking around. We've got thirty executive orders. We've got what seems to be, perhaps it's not perfect, a plan, a purpose. Time is time is going to be the great decider, but I'm encouraged by these these very early returns. Yeah, I mean, it was good to see the new radicals back again. Uh, I don't think that Joe Biden uh, understands that that song was against rich people and against the powerful and elite. I mean, for God's sakes, we've got to put Courtney Love in Maryland Mansion and witness protection program now uh, because because of that song. But yeah, I mean, it was it was. I hate the inauguration. I hate all the pomp. Just you know, take take your oath in the Oval Office and let's get going. Because everything else just looks like a whole bunch of elites standing up there with their well-priced dresses as they listen to Lady Gaga in the world's largest bird pin sing, and J Lo mix. Uh, let's get loud with America. With this land is your land, and it's kind of like, oh yeah, all that criticism about Democrats being only for Hollywood and celebrities. Well, here it is, and it was just kind of like. Uh, that's disappointing. But I mean, he he got to work and it's been very, very surprising in a good way. Uh, you know, I think Biden's had a very good first five days. Um, it's been great. I mean, I know we'll get into it, but it's been good executive orders. I mean, it's, it's nice to have a president who understands that uh, COVID is serious and a problem and isn't allowed and is allowing Fauci to actually like talk at press conferences. I think that's a nice change of pace. By the way, Usually I'm the one who feels old in these things, but you mentioned Courtney Love. Frances Bean is Courtney's daughter, is now older than Kurt Cobain was when he died. Doesn't that make you feel old? Doesn't make me feel young. (laughs) So I think there's two things you really need to talk to in terms of the first few days, first four days. One is his picks for the cabinet. And, you know, I have a couple of them. Uh, Janet Yellen as Secretary of Treasury uh, would not have been my first pick. But, Zach, you would have lost the bet that the uh, Biden Secretary of Treasury had worked for Goldman Sachs because she had not. Marty Walsh as Secretary of Labor, I think, is a great choice. Lloyd Austin for defense. Obviously, I have issues with military personnel within five years, but I think I'd trade that for the uh, diversity. Deb Holland for Secretary of the Interior, the first uh, um, Native American to hold that position. Xavier Bocera for HHS and and Vilasek for Agriculture. Connecticut's own Miguel Cardona for Secretary of Education. Uh, Marsha Fudge for Housing and Urban Development. I think because we're very progressive, we would often have people we would have preferred, like I would have preferred Keith Ellison to Blunt or Doug Jones to Merrick Garland. But ultimately, I, I don't think the picks have been offensive. What do you guys think? Um, I mean, the defense, the defense pick, you know, getting around the five-year rule, the five-year ban, and then, and then the justification being, well, Trump did it, is 
incredibly irritating because it, it's just politics like a sport. Like, hey, I root for the Jets and anything the Jets do are great and anything the Pats do is terrible. And Trump did this and he's the Pats, so it's terrible. But the, Biden did this and he's the Jets, so it's great. That's that's irritating. That's a little disappointing. But you are right. Like the first African-American uh, you know, person to ever hold that position is significant. You know, the same way it is with Deb Holland uh, being secretary of the interior. You know, native rights are going to be at the front and foremost. And I think that was, you know, one of the ways that that was shown was the executive order uh, canceling the Keystone Pipeline. You know, it, it, does that happen if Deb Holland isn't Secretary of the Interior? I don't know. I think it's a good sign that that happened and that she was. You know, Marty Walsh or Marty Walsh uh, from the mayor of Boston. You know, I mean, I've walked a picket line with that guy and uh, for striking MTA workers in Boston. That guy is awesome. He is he is just he is the living incarnation of Boston, just a red-faced Irishman who's angry all the time. You know, it, it, it's I'm very excited about that. You know, I mean, like he, he had a oh Biden's pick for the CIA. I'm never going to agree with that because I don't think the CIA should exist. So, like, the, he's never going to pick someone that I think is going to be good. Um, the Merrick Garland one for AG was, like you said, like Doug Jones would have been a better pick. Doug Jones made a career out of being this kind of – Or selling Yates. Yeah, yeah, you know, this kind of fighter for uh, justice and racial equity. And, and, you know, his cases in Alabama were, were landmarks. And, you know, we, we get, you know, this this piece of white bread Merrick Garland as our AG. And it's like, oh, I can, it's probably not going to be as progressive as I like, but I'm not sure anyone in that position would be as progressive as I like. Perhaps it's like, the, like putting the Band-Aid on the fact that, like, they didn't get him through as a Supreme Court justice. I don't know. Um, it's refreshing. It's refreshing to see a cabinet composed of aesthetically what this country looks like in terms of, hey, there's some women, there's people of color, instead of a collection of bought, bankrupted, uh, just uh, bootlickers of the incumbent president. Um, I also, I remember there was a lot of talk of um, incumbent Dem senators taking seats. And I think it's good that maybe not, I think in the short term, maybe not, but long term, keeping um, the likes of I, there was talk of Bernie and there was talk of Warren uh, getting seats, get, getting cabinet positions. And I think it's for the best that they stay where they are and continue to do like the you know, the great work that they do in those positions. I, I will say Merrick Garland has to just be the biggest sad sack because, you know, he gets nominated for the Supreme Court. He gets he gets, you know, blocked. It doesn't happen. It's awful. You know, it's the top honor you could get as a as a as a judge. And then he gets appointed to the uh, AG position at, you know, 930 in the morning on January 6th. And it's like, all right, this is going to be my news cycle. And then by 12, there was an insurrection happening. So it's just like, oh, you got to You feel a little bad for the guys, you know. My thing was, like, you looked at Trump's cabinet picks, and they were not only a all old rich white guys, but uh, the ones that weren't old rich white guys, Betsy DeVos and, and uh, I mean, Ben Carson, the guy, the guy for HUD, uh, Ben, ben Carson, Carson, um, who I believe, who I believe is still sleeping in his office somewhere. Yeah, but <laughs> that, you know. I didn't like. I didn't want to defend Biden's picks by being better than that, you know, as the only thing. But clearly, he has gone. Um, one of the things that's been most surprising is 
some of the breaks he's made for the Biden administration um, that I have been impressed that uh, he, you know, some of the things he did. And I do understand, like, I wanted Katie Porter for Secretary of Treasury, but that's a House seat we'd never win again. Only Katie Porter's winning that seat. And, and, and also, J- Janet Yellen is really good. Janet yeah, Yellen is I mean, very progressive, who, by the way, also was just wearing kind of like she had a blanket on and was wearing this kind of like old coat during the inauguration, too. Uh, I think it was just two old Jewish people know how to dress in the cold. And, and yeah, <laughs> right. And I, I, I just felt like his picks were more progressive than I would have guessed. And um, I do think that one of the things that has helped Biden is the January 6th insurrection, um, I do think, really focused him on the fact that, oh, this idea that if we have lunch together, we're going to be okay is over. And, um, you know, at some level, you can't survive 46 years in politics in a competitive state. Delaware is blue, but it's not deep. It's light blue. You can't be Chuck Grassley in Delaware. And the fact that he survived through this long indicates kind of an openness to different ideas. So, Zach, you talked about the first five days of the executive orders. What are the ones that resonated most deeply with you? Uh, I think there were probably, I mean, there were a lot. He did 30 executive orders in in four days. Um, I mean, obviously one... uh, one of the one of the ones that I that is just more most personally important to me, it restored collective bargaining rights and worker protections for federal workers uh, since Trump had rescinded them in, in an executive order. And in that, he also uh, kind of laid out his plans to get to a fifteen dollar federal minimum wage. That that's pretty big. That that's pretty big. Um, I think you know putting us back in the World Health Organization in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, was one of those is, is obviously a huge improvement. I think that was one of those things that Trump did that just got drowned out in the static that was the Trump administration that he withdrew us from there. Like I remember it happening, but I also remember it was in the middle of like nine other things happening, you know, um, canceling the Keystone XL pipeline, which I mentioned before is, is huge. That's huge. You know, and I know, listen, there are going to be things about jobs and blah, 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 but they were, building a bad pipeline right through native land and Biden, Biden stopped that. And that wasn't even anything he ran on, um, you know, things like rejoining the Paris climate accords. That's great. But one of the things I think he did that is just kind of a good sign about what, how he'll govern. I think it's backed up by his picks of diversity as well in the, in, in the cabinet. Uh, he rescinded Trump's 1776 commission, uh, which basically was going to be like, we can never talk about anything bad that's ever happened in America and we can never, like actually address racial inequities. I think that that those were probably some of the biggest ones, as well as you know, just things like you know, reversing the 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 Muslim ban. Like that that's an obvious one. Like, but but yeah, I think it's been great. Totally agree. Um, and I think obviously, l- listen, it's no secret. The biggest thing right now, COVID. That's what needs to be addressed first and foremost. I think enhancing. Um, SNAP programs, uh, food stamps, uh, food aid to to uh, to those that need it. Um, enhanced COVID relief bills going out to citizens. 
and just uh, ma- uh, the mandates on masks in uh, in federal uh, buildings in uh, certain modes of transportation. I know we had well, we discussed on air kind of how the goofiness of like a uh, what was it the hundred hundred days wearing a hun- wearing a mask for the next hundred days, which is that's you know I don't know if certain uh, fragments of this population are going to adhere to that, but um, just taking this thing seriously, which the predecessor did not, uh, and, and until we quell COVID, then nothing else really kind of matters, you know, short term. He had 14 executive orders that dealt directly with coronavirus. And as Zach, as you pointed out, it wasn't just the restoration of collective bargaining, but it was a statement, you know, and and you criticized him uh, during the debates for never saying this, but that unions are the lifeblood of of middle-class America. Um, and, And you should have criticized him that I do think that his capacity to learn and to listen, um, you know, Elizabeth Warren said this, that of everyone she's ever met in government, he was the one that listened most intently, that he hasn't been too proud to say, oh, I need to move in this direction. And his first five days have been far more progressive than his campaign would have indicated you know, and but he is confronting just incredible bad faith that when Ted Cruz, who is not stupid, he's evil, but he's not stupid, says that he joined the Paris, he rejoined the Paris Accords because he cares more about the citizens of France and the citizens of America, which is just on its face stupid. Like, I do seem to think he's recognized that there will never be good faith art bargaining uh, in this. Uh, I was the most surprising thing for me in the first five days is Schumer dismissing out of hand any negotiations with McConnell. Um, That, you know, they'll end the filibuster if they choose and the filibuster it's because they won. And I just, I just feel like, you know, I want to hear your feelings. I think he's done a great, Biden's done a great job at A, being progressive and holding accountability, but B, respecting the different branches of government. When he says that Congress gets to do impeachment, I thought was the exact right answer. Um, Obviously, all of us, all of us would would want him to say what Rashid Tlaib said, you know, two months into her into her term. Let's impeach the motherfucker. But I think that's the right answer. How have you felt about his his ability to to straddle all of these different impulses? Yeah, I mean, first off, the Ted Cruz Paris Climate Accord comment, you know. It's like if he was around in 1945, he would have thought the Yalta conference was only going to benefit the people of Yalta after World War II. Like, for God's sakes, man, that's just fucking stupid on its face. I actually wrote that joke down and I forgot to read it. (laughs) But, but, oh, I think like during the primary, the one thing Bernie said, and he got criticized by a lot of his staff, was that he was not going to attack Joe Biden. 
Because he was like, no, Joe Biden's my friend. He's a good man. Like, we, we know each other. We talk to each other. And I think that's been the most refreshing thing is just seeing that. I think Biden knows that this is a serious job and he's taking it serious. Uh, he's taking it seriously. And he's also listening a lot more. Like, I would have loved it if he ran. If this is going to be what his presidency is like, the first four days, five days, you know, by the time this hits the first six days, or any indication of what the next four years are going to be like, it's better than anything I thought could be because he ran. I'm not doing any of this. Um, but I think, you know, I think that is a big, it is a big help. Like seeing, having a president understand that like what you say matters, that if you go on Twitter and say Meryl Streep is a psycho, that that might be a little beneath the office of the president, that maybe you should spend your time like, getting us around a set of ideas and and i think you're right like his whole like i'm gonna sit down with mitch mcconnell i think that that's out you know i i think he pretty much knows what that what that's gonna be and that what it what mitch mcconnell's gonna do to protect his caucus um but i mean biden's off to a good start i think for four years the office of the presidency was merely a grift meant to it's just self-empower one man and one and one family and one dynasty or whatever you want to fucking call it. And guess what? Now it's not. And again, the early returns of these five days show that, you know, we're moving in the right direction in this country. I, I am a little one worried about of the things that concern me is that when we talk about a return to normalcy being a good thing, it's, you know, we're a podcast of four white men. So normalcy benefits us but this isn't normalcy this is not just undoing the damage trump did this is really aggressively extending so far aggressively extending the vision that obama talked about but did not enact and um if that continues to be the case uh you know I don't wish he ran on it because if he ran on it, he might have lost and he won. So we're good. See, that's the whole argument, though, is that if progressives actually act progressive, that we can never win, even against the fascist. And it's like, it shouldn't have been close. It shouldn't have been close. No, this election should not have it been. Was. Like, but it this, was. But it was because he ran on things that weren't, he ran to the center. And it's like, yeah, you got 306 electoral college votes. That is a fucking blowout. That, that's a blowout. Yeah. 306 to 230. Is, is, that's a, and he won by 8 million votes. Yeah, I mean, California exists. But like... Yeah. It, but you're still Americans. But Oh, yeah, exactly. But it, should, but like, it shouldn't have been that close in Michigan. Should have been that close in Wisconsin. Should have been that close in Pennsylvania. But it was because I think at some point, people understand centrist policies don't fucking work. You know, Bill Clinton had a very, very diverse cabinet, too, and enacted some of the most conservative policies a Democrat could enact. I mean, he deregulated the banking industry, you know, just because he had a, a diverse cabinet. Well, he did didn't make it a good thing. It's still bad. And I'm hoping that Biden is the reverse where he has a diverse cabinet. And then he actually reflects the ideas that are inherent in that in those communities, which tend to be very progressive. So. We'll close on a one-word answer. Will the filibuster be revoked? Or, I mean, it's not even revoked because it's not in the Constitution. Will well, they get rid of the filibuster? 
Will they get rid of? The, yeah, but there were a whole there were a billion kind of norms that were changed, and um, will the filibuster be reversed, um, Andrew? Yes. Zach? No. You know who's against revoking the filibuster? Bernie Sanders. Yeah, I think it. I think it will be. I don't. I. I think that the stimulus package, which even Manchin has signed on to now, I think that uh, the stimulus package will be it. I think they'll reverse it. It's been reversed in every single way by McConnell, other than in just regular votes. But anyway. See, I think I think it benefits so, it, it benefits Democrats like Joe Manchin, like Kristen Sinema, like the more centrist ones to have the filibuster because then they don't actually have to vote on anything. They can just blame it on the Republicans. It's in it's in yeah, their I, interest to keep the filibuster. I just don't think it's going to happen. I think that they're going to. I think that uh, it's going to be revoked because ultimately the people of the United States need governance, and you have a party that refuses to govern. And uh, if we don't jump on the Republicans now, when are we going to? But with that, next week we're going to come back and talk about the other Hall of Famer who died this week and maybe one of the most important baseball players who ever lived, Henry Aaron. But now we're going to say good, good night and good luck from the Bill Bradley Collective. Thank you for joining us on the Bill Bradley Collective. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and follow us on Facebook at the Bill Bradley Collective. We'll see you again next week.